Support for this week's show comes from Deeply Human, a podcast from APM, the BBC, and iHeartMedia. The show's hosted by Dessa, and essentially it explores why we do the things we do, like why we get deja vu, or why we might play songs that make us sad over and over. The show's hoping understanding human nature better can help people be better and treat people better. Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American Public Media co-production with iHeartMedia. Listen and subscribe to Deeply Human wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode comes from Sattva. If you're working long hours on your next big idea, you're probably missing your eight hours of sleep. And even one night of bad sleep can really affect your energy the next day, which is why Sattva wants to help with its Sattva Classic Innerspring Mattress. Thanks to its two layers of coils, the Sattva Classic Innerspring contours to your body. Why? So you can wake up feeling refreshed instead of groggy and tired. Plus, you'll sleep even better knowing that Sattva mattresses are always offered at half the price of retail stores. Start enjoying prices you thought you'd only dream about by visiting Sattva at sattva.com. The time today, right now, the place, the ocean, hundreds of miles from any shore. So why don't we start at the top? Simon Thorold, age 57. Occupation, ecologist, and today, guide. He's taking us beneath the waves. So you can imagine that we're descending down and we look up and we can see the surface, right? We can see light coming down from the surface. But as we descend further and further, it's starting to look pretty dark. And then the switch really is when we go below 200 meters. And now there's almost no light from the surface. The waters are deep and heavy and cold. But there is still a kind of light. We're seeing flashes to the side of us or beneath us. Light from creatures glowing in the dark. A fireworks display of luminescence that is allowing these different organisms to communicate with each other or to avoid predators. Flash, a lanternfish, bedazzled with sparkling cells. Flash a chain of connected clones known as a siphonophore, glowing green or blue or red like a string of holiday lights. Flash, an anglerfish dangles one bright bulb in front of its face to distract from the gaping mouth full of needle-shaped teeth. So we're still seeing fish and we're still seeing crustaceans like krill and we're still seeing jellyfish, but now this particular fish species we're talking about are not looking like anything that we've ever seen before. This is a dimension as vast as the ocean and as timeless as infinity. It is the ground between light and shadow, between science and mystery, and it lies between the pit of a man's ignorance and the sum of his knowledge. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. I'm Noam Hassenfeld, here with reporter Bird Pinkerton. And don't worry, this is still unexplainable. We, we didn't suddenly become a podcast about the Twilight Zone. Kind of became a podcast about the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone of the ocean. <laughs> yeah. So this is the the mesopelagic zone of the ocean. It's just a very fancy way of saying the middle 
of the okay. ocean, the middle depths from 200 meters down to about 1,000 meters down. And it's known as the twilight zone because it's where sunlight kind of fades away. Uh, and also, it's, it's very mysterious. It's almost easier to define it by what we don't know than by what we do know. And Doni Lavery has been studying the twilight zone for years now. And what really got me interested in the ocean twilight zone was just the vast uncertainties. Is the twilight zone more mysterious than the bottom of the ocean? Yeah, actually. Um, mostly because scientists only started exploring it fairly recently. Like, for a long time, uh, they thought of the middle as just kind of the water you had to get through on the way to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really realize that the twilight zone itself was worth exploring until around World War II. When the U.S. started making a bunch of new naval equipment. Man developed clever new listening devices. Devices that could hear a submarine underwater. They were using sonar, which emitted a pulse of sound. A pulse of sound sent out from a speaker located in the ship's hull. And this pulse of sound would travel through the ocean, and whenever it hit a target, some part of that sound would be reflected back up so they could measure it. Now man had a way to see for great distances beneath the ocean's surface. As part of the war effort, the Navy was sending out researchers to kind of refine these listening devices. I couldn't find any tape of the actual researchers doing this. So instead, I used some Twilight Zone clips to kind of fill in the gaps. Contact bearing 280, 1100 yards. Our Twilight Zone researcher, Andoni, says these scientists were doing their thing. Do you hear it, sir? They were sending out their pulses and measuring the reflections. Now, typically the strongest reflection in the ocean, the strongest reflector of sound is the bottom. You see the bottom. But what they also saw were these shadow, like these additional reflections, which they couldn't quite explain. What am I listening to? They looked like false bottoms. Ghost, man. Ghost. What exactly are false bottoms? So these were sonar readings that looked like the bottom of the ocean, but they were way too high up to be the bottom of the ocean. I want dead quiet all over the ship. So they were essentially picking up thick layers of something. And it turns out that as the day and night changed, these false bottoms migrated up and down in the water column. The false bottoms were rising and falling every day. They want us to be quiet so they can listen to it. What I want to know is, listen to what? Yeah, listen to what? <laughs> well... So eventually researchers realized that if this bottom was moving, it was mm -hmm. probably organisms. Okay. But like a lot of organisms. Like like so many so thickly packed together that they gave the impression of the bottom of the ocean. Huh. Okay, okay. Which meant that potentially they were witnessing like the biggest migration on the planet happening every single day. Like like countless mm. organisms coming up from the twilight zone, coming to the surface, and then sinking back down into the depths. Are, are these like fish? Are they big fish, small fish, bacteria? They had the same question. It was pretty definitely biological in origin, but just because it's biological in origin doesn't tell you a whole lot about what it actually is. So for decades now, researchers like Andoni have been using nets, sonar, they've been throwing cameras down there, but they still don't really know the basics. Okay. They've gotten samples from nets to give them ideas, but they don't know exactly how many organisms there are or exactly what they're up to. These organisms are often tiny organisms. They're traveling, you know, the equivalent of 
thousands and thousands of body lengths just to get up those few hundred meters, right? So why would they do that? How many of them do that? Do they do it every night? Do they get tired and decide, hey, I'm not doing it tonight? We don't know, right? So so we don't really know anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it's not like it's not like these researchers are bad at their jobs. Um, but the Twilight Zone is very hard to study. It's deep, it's dark, it's it's elusive, it's temperamental. So it's very hard to get sort of a full coherent picture here. Mm-hmm. That being said, they have learned a lot. Um, they've found the weird, wonderful animals, like the ones we heard about at the top. Um, so like the, the anglerfish, for example. Uh, Are the anglerfish the ones with the like thing sticking out over their head with the light bulby thing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you may be more familiar with it as like the the terrifying sea creature in, in Finding Nemo. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> Where I get most of my fish knowledge from. <laughs> Parts of that movie are very biologically accurate. Um, okay. But anyway, so scientists are finding cool creatures, and they're, they're finding something else, something that's arguably even more important. They're finding that these creatures might be playing a really important role in slowing down climate change. The ocean is a really important vector for sequestering carbon. Sequestering carbon meaning, like, absorbing CO2? Yeah. So Andoni was telling me that the ocean actually absorbs billions of metric tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere every single year. And this absorption is actually being done by the organisms? These migrating organisms? Kind of. Potentially. (laughs) Um, They play a role in it. Sure. Okay. So... The theory here is you have all this phytoplankton living at the surface of the ocean. It's just Mm -hmm. floating around up there. And as carbon in the air gets absorbed into the surface of the ocean, this phytoplankton uses it to make little shells for themselves or little plant bodies. And then Mm -hmm. all of our organisms come from the deep in the twilight zone. Uh, They're coming up at night and they're gobbling (laughs) all of this phytoplankton up and then sinking back down taking their carbon with them. Okay, wouldn't they just bring the carbon back up with them the next night? No, because they're pooping. Pooping. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. I I have the pleasure of having a job where I can say pooping with a serious face. Uh, Andoni actually paints one of the the prettier pictures of poop I've ever heard. It's marine snow. (laughs) It's like the glimmer of stars in the sky. So it's like a beautiful snow globe of poop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, uh, the Twilight Zone, a beautiful snow globe of poop. And how much carbon, how much CO2 is being trapped in this marine snow? That's another question that we don't yet know the answer to. One source I read suggested that it could be double what all the automobiles in the world are pumping out every year. Wait, wait, double all the cars? Yes, but again, it's still just a possibility. Scientists like Andoni don't have a definitive number because they still don't know enough about the organisms that are pooping out this carbon in the first place. And we can't understand how important the mesopelagic is to the carbon cycle until we have a pretty good idea of how many, what kind, how big, what they eat, when do they migrate. These are fundamental to that question. Okay, so the Twilight Zone is this vast, mostly unexplored sort of middle depth of the ocean. Correct. And it seems like there's tons of these organisms coming up from the twilight zone, eating phytoplankton every day at the top, migrating back down, pooping it out. Potentially. And that, potentially. 
And that is potentially sequestering tons and tons of CO2 and maybe helping mitigate climate change. Yes, that is the theory. Uh, And then in 2014, that theory becomes even more important. What happens in 2014? Uh, A scientist published a paper. um, And it basically said, hey, guys, uh, we took measurements, like sound measurements, all around the world. And we think maybe the Twilight Zone has 10 times as many fish as we previously suspected. 10 times? 10 times. That's a lot. And and I assume they must have missed all these fish because the Twilight Zone is really hard to study? Yeah. Like... I can't emphasize this enough. It is very big and very inaccessible. And to be clear, they don't even know if this number is correct. It's a rough estimate. There could still be problems with it. But the the idea, the idea that they'd missed 90% of fish and who knows how many other organisms, this was essentially like a like a big and inspirational kick in the pants. I would even go so far as to say it was seminal. Seminal in as much as I think it really got people's imagination going. Yeah, I mean, it's like an entire ocean of fish we didn't know about before. But that ocean of fish, it doesn't just get researchers' imaginations going. Uh, So fisheries also get interested. Oh, because I guess they got 90% more fish that they can fish, right? Yeah, and these are not like fish for for your plate. (laughs) They're very bony and small. Mm -hmm. But they are potentially good for, say, chicken feed or, or aquaculture. And this isn't just a theoretical thing. There are actually um, a few countries that have already uh, been issued permits for fishing uh, the mesopelagic. So it's all small scale now, but if these twilight zone organisms are helping sequester billions of metric tons of carbon dioxide every year, like if this is a foot on the brake of climate change, uh, we don't want to accidentally fish too much and, and mess that up. Suddenly, scientists woke up and they said, hey, we have this opportunity to understand what's happening in this ecosystem before we exploit it. And now there's kind of like this ticking clock. So Andoni and a bunch of other researchers at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, they've gotten a ton of funding and they're doing all kinds of research to understand this ecosystem. Some of them are testing little bits of tissue and poop left behind in the water. Other people are studying what eats what, looking at currents. And Doni's team has got kind of like a dolphin noise machine. What we do is we transmit sound. Let me see if I can do it. <laughs> okay, so so all of this is going to hopefully help them understand everything about these organisms, like what they are, why they're migrating, how much carbon they might be absorbing before this ticking clock runs out? Right, but it doesn't end kind of with the science coming out of this Woods Hole team, right? Like, to protect the Twilight Zone and to fish it sustainably, people also have to use the science to change policy. And I've found that changing policy is harder than changing science. Harder than exploring the Twilight Zone? Very potentially. Uh, I'll tell you more about it in a sec. If the last year has taught us anything, it's that we don't know what will happen next. But there's one thing we can all be sure of. The only future is one we can all share. And leading the charge in building that future is Mercy Corps. With over 40 years of humanitarian work under its belt, building together is in Mercy Corps' DNA. 
And as the climate crisis increases, they're partnering with those on the front lines, making resources more accessible to farmers across the globe, strengthening communities against escalating natural disasters, and ensuring people have the tools they need to thrive. Mercy Corps is doing the work that matters, but they can't do it alone. That's where you and I come in. Together, we all have the power to reshape the world. When it seems like every day brings a new crisis, when every news alert makes you want to throw your phone across the room, we may start to feel a little powerless. But Mercy Corps is here to remind us, we don't need to. Through community-based action, we can make change. We are nothing if not in this together. What's next is up to all of us. Learn how you can be a part of what's possible at mercycorps.org. That's M-E-R-C-Y-C-O-R-P-S dot org. I'm Dessa, the host of Deeply Human, where we find out why you do the things you do. Why do you fall for him or her? Why are you drawn to a particular person? Choice is good, but there can be too much of a good thing. And when you give people too much of a good thing, they get paralyzed. What attracts one person to another? Why do you get deja vu? And how does pain change the way that you perceive yourself? There's a whole bunch of taboos around illness and speaking about it, even in your most intimate relationships. From the hidden power dynamics of the standing line to the technological advances that challenge our definitions of death. It's a space where it emphasizes your lack of agency, your position within the society that somebody else is controlling your time. You have to have some sex, otherwise we're all just going to die out. Being a scientist, well, <laughs> very, very cautious about what we say that we know for sure, because it's tough to prove stuff. Join me for Deeply Human, a BBC World Service and American public media co-production with iHeartMedia. Available wherever pods are cast. Bird, we're back. Yes. Before the break, you were talking about how we need to make sure we don't overfish the Twilight Zone, because if we do, it might speed up climate change. So how do we protect the Twilight Zone? Like, who controls the ocean? It's complicated. More than two-thirds of the ocean is actually beyond the jurisdiction of any one state. I spoke to a lovely researcher. Her name is Harriet Hardin-Davies. She spends a lot of her time figuring out sort of how ocean science becomes ocean policy. Mm -hmm. And she basically told me that there are lots of different organizations that are regulating some things. Um, Other things aren't regulated at all. And what you end up with is a patchwork. So we do have some complexities in the ocean governance framework, as well as some gaps. Which means that Twilight Zone researchers could come up with the most solid scientific evidence in the world, like like a very clear case that fishing shouldn't happen in one area or another. But it's it's very hard to actually translate that evidence into the law of all the ocean. There's no one place that you could take that to and where the actors there would be empowered to do something about it. Hmm. So so is all this research for nothing? Are these researchers just, like, yelling into the void? No. <laughs> Not the void. Okay, um, okay. It's more like they're yelling to lots of different organizations, each with, with very limited power and reach. Um, okay. But that's why there are actually currently some, some really cool ideas being floated about how we might change things. What kind of ideas? So, so there's one model for, for making things less patchy, kind of tucked away in existing sea law. So for just some, some context here, for a long time, the, the laws of the ocean were, were even more of a free-for-all than they are now. For years, decades, centuries even, 
the idea of something called the cannon shot rule prevailed, which is exactly as it sounds. People thought, well, if I can shoot a cannon from, from here offshore, then that's how far I can control. And then in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, we're post-World War II, Cold War is going on, international collaboration is the rage. And the countries in the UN are like, okay, these cannon shot laws, not going to cut it anymore. We got to get something better on the books. And near the beginning of all these conversations and debates, the Maltese ambassador, this guy named Arvid Pardo, gets up to speak. And I can see his face now. He's got short gray hair and glasses, and he stands up at the United Nations and delivers this. It was quite a long speech. And in this long speech, Pardo talks about the ocean floor, so the seabed. And he says, look, the ocean floor has a lot of potential for mineral wealth. He's saying that that was too great for any one nation to have. And it was also not fair that only a few nations would benefit from this space that was shared by all. And so he argued that um, the seabed area should be considered as the common heritage of mankind. The common heritage of mankind? Yeah. So this is the model that might interest us. It eventually becomes policy for the seafloor. So anyone who wants to use the seafloor anywhere on the ocean, they have to make sure they're sharing the wealth and splitting up resources equally. So there's this one group, the International Seabed Authority, that makes sure they do that which means there is one body that controls all the seafloor that's under international waters. Okay, so in this case, if you're a researcher and you're studying the seafloor, you actually have somewhere to go with your research if you notice that something really needs to happen with the seafloor. Yeah, exactly. It is one forum where science can provide um, really important inputs to policy. But this is just the seafloor, right? This, This isn't the Twilight Zone? Right. So originally, Pardo and his colleagues did want it to cover all the ocean, bottom Mm -hmm. to the top, including the Twilight Zone. And they kind of had to settle for just the seafloor. But if our big problem here is that it's hard to convert science into policy because there isn't one place to go for the whole ocean, maybe they could expand this model. Yeah, they just need to take it from the bottom of the ocean and bring it up to the rest of the ocean. Right. So... It's uh, a really exciting year for this. Um, At the moment, states at the UN are negotiating a new treaty. This treaty is fondly referred to as the BBNJ Agreement. And if acronyms aren't allowed, we'll just call it the High Seas Treaty. The High Seas Treaty. Yes, this is a brand new treaty. They've been debating it for years now. And if it comes together, it will cover more than just the seafloor, right? It will cover the ocean from top to bottom, including the Twilight Zone. One small thing to note here is that some parts of Pardo's seafloor principle, so this common heritage of mankind, um, like, for example, the part where all the minerals in the seafloor are split up equally, that might not happen here. But the idea is we're going to come away with a treaty that makes ocean policy less of a disconnected, confusing patchwork. Okay, so it might be slow, frustrating, but but there's at least, like, potential here, right? Like a glimmer of hope? Yes, there's a lot to be hopeful about. I always love to be hopeful. But I think what I learned from this conversation with Harriet is that it's important not to just sort of be blindly hopeful when it comes to ocean science. So some people might say that the more we know about the ocean, the more science we have the more we'll protect it, or the more informed decisions will be made. But I mean, that in itself is a hypothesis. Ocean research is the best. 
It is wonderful. I am all for it. Harriet is all for it. But a study on the number of fish, for example, can inspire scientists or it can inspire fisheries. Science is just the first step here. But ultimately, it depends on how ocean science is used in ocean policy. It depends on who's in power and how that power is used. This episode was produced and reported by Bird Pinkerton. We had editing from Noam Hessenfeld, Jillian Weinberger, Brian Resnick, and our senior producer, Meredith Hodnott. Noam handled the music, and Christian Ayala did the mixing and sound design, with some key pointers from Afim Shapiro, who also did a great Rod Serling impression for our intro. Fact-checking and extra help from me, Mandy Nguyen. Special thanks this episode to Annette Govindarajan, K.R. Baltes, and Suzanne Pellison from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution for all their help. And thanks to Amanda Northrup, Lauren Katz, and Liz Kelly Nelson. If you want to see pictures of weird Twilight Zone creatures, or if you want to learn more about international ocean policy, sign up for our newsletter. This week, it's got an article on the Twilight Zone from Bird, and links to a lot of articles by Harriet. Or you can find the link in our show notes. As for our show, feel free to send us your thoughts. Unexplainable. And we'll be back in your feed next Wednesday. Everybody's afraid. Everyone, Dad, why? People are afraid because they make themselves afraid. They're afraid because they subvert every great thing ever discovered. Every fine idea ever thought, every marvelous invention ever conceived. They subvert it, Jody. They make it crooked and devious. Then too late, far too late, they ask themselves the question, why? And then it's too late. Everything is too late. <laughs>